Let's stand as we come now to God's Word. You'll find it on page 1 in your pew Bibles, and I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Genesis 2, verse 3, as we come to these important chapters of the Bible. Let's pray now as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we pray that you will grant us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and we pray for the help of your Spirit, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, let's hear God's word. Genesis chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above uh, the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and uh, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, 
And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Do please sit down. Now, I'm sure that I cannot possibly do justice to what we've just read uh, in the next few minutes, let alone chapter 2, which completes the coherent account of uh, the foundational chapters of the Bible and the account of creation. I have thought about these matters long and hard over some years. I've preached on these chapters before, at least once. Uh, I have read uh, this week 15 commentaries and books or so on these chapters. Uh, Some of which I've read before but needed to be refreshed in my mind. Uh, Some of which were new to me as the the debate about uh, origins has taken new shape in uh, the last few years. I am suspicious of too careful accounts to make Genesis sound like contemporary science because as a historian, I know that the medieval church was very careful to make the Genesis account sound like Aristotelian philosophy And then got into all sorts of trouble when that went out of fashion with the Copernican Revolution. I think the story of Galileo does not just tell us to be careful to not bury our head in the sand when new data arrives, though it certainly does that. But I think it also tells us to not be too careful to make the Bible say exactly what people today think it should say, because what people today think it should say may not be what people tomorrow think it should say. We should be careful then, it seems to me, to study it as it is and let it speak for itself. So I want then this morning to present to you the Creator and His creation as Genesis 1 and 2 presents them to us. And I want the result of that to be awe and worship, a sense of significance for every person here made in the image of God a sense of accountability for every person made by their creator, a sense of purpose as we grasp the design for which we were all intended. Now, before we do that, so my two points are just going to be simply the creator and then his creation with four practical, uh, with sort of theological underpinning applications at the end. But before we do that, I need to make two initial remarks to prevent anyone from switching off before I even begin. First initial remark. It strikes me as not without significance that no historic Christian creed mandates a certain interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, to my knowledge. Now, that does not mean there are not significant matters at stake with how we interpret Genesis 1 and 2, nor that we need perhaps to make new statements from time to time that will indicate that. But it does mean that the wisdom of church history seems to me, to me to indicate we should not insist on uniformity of interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 for salvation or for fellowship. And so Paul tells us that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. Now that does not mean that matters beyond that are not important, that they are not significant steps of discipleship as we learn more about the Bible. 
nor that believing that Jesus is Lord implies belief that he is the creator Lord, which it does. But it does tell us where our point of unity should be, it seems to me. And I think Christian creeds down through the years confirm that sort of biblical intuition. Second initial remark is that the more I thought about the matter this week, the more I have reflected on it, the more I have been humbled. I am not a scientist, but I am a historian by training to some extent. And the sheer challenge of interpreting this text that goes back to the dawn of human history and beyond, to the very beginning, well, it's one that should cause us, however sophisticated we feel we are in the 21st century, to bow and accept what we cannot understand. Behind this is the Reformers' principle of accommodation. That is, that the God of the Bible speaks in terms which we are likely to be able to grasp. He accommodates His revelation of Himself in terms that could make sense to us in our human finite understanding. Like a father trying to explain to a child quantum mechanics in a way that is accommodated to his understanding, so God in His infinite wisdom reveals to us the fact of creation in a way that Moses, early Israel, the New Testament, the early church, the Middle Ages, the Reformers, and people today can understand, grasp, and then apply to their lives. Well, first then, the Creator. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us, uh, I think, at least seven truths about the Creator. One, they show us that the Creator is distinct from His creation. God is separate, above, over, creating, ordering, speaking, caring, but not in or part of creation. God said, and it was so. God planted a garden. God took a man and put him in the garden. So this is not the pagan view of God as part of creation. This is the Christian view of God as supreme, separate, distinct, over, above, ordering, controlling, speaking, different from creation. He is the uncreated creator. Two, these chapters show us that the creator is eternal, eternal. In the beginning, God created. And that this beginning is different from the other parts of Genesis is confirmed by the observation that all the other 11 sections of Genesis start with the phrase, these are the generations of, but only the very beginning begins with, in the beginning. So this does not mean that God was only at the beginning or from the beginning, but that in a way beyond our time-bound minds can conceive. God simply always was, He is, and there is no other. He is in the beginning. Now, Richard Dawkins is sometimes heard to object to creation by saying, who created God? But as John Lennox, in his book on this theme, replies, that is really an objection to the eternity as a possibility. So, Dawkins is saying nothing can be eternal. But philosophers have often believed in the eternality of something, often, in fact, secular philosophers, in the eternality of matter. Dawkins is just making nature his ultimate instead of God. And so the reply then is to answer on his own terms. 
As Dawkins believes that the universe created him, who then created his creator? You see, these chapters tell us that God is the ultimate. God is, and there is no other. He is beyond time and space. He is not material in creation. He is not temporal in time. He was in the beginning. Three, these chapters tell us that God is all-powerful. Nothing that God desires is thwarted. He speaks, and it is so. Now think of the sheer size of the universe. Uh, Unlike the ancients, we know that the world is not literally on pillars, nor the stars hang in the sky just right above our heads. We have a sense of the vast scale of the universe and the unimaginable complexity of the microscopic world beneath, as well as the universe above. Think of the God who simply speaks, and it is. It's true that next week we will consider the fall of man when God found that the pinnacle of his creation rebelled against his will. But even this is not outside of his omnipotent intention, but part of his grand design to reveal his glory. As the book of Ephesians puts it, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, this creator does not work up a sweat, does not get tired. Even the Sabbath rest is not a rest of exhausted inactivity. Jesus tells us that God is working all the time, ordering, arranging, sustaining. No, but it's a rest of satisfied achievement. And therefore, it's a rest for us of worship. For these chapters tell us that God is a speaking God. He speaks, of course, the world into creation. Words are God's tools. His word is powerful. And you see, one of the confirmations of the brilliance of Genesis' account of creation is the recognized today impossibility of matter generating intelligence. There is a mathematical order to the the world that reflects the letters of creation, with which creation still reflects the Creator's speaking voice. DNA has its letters, as Crick and Watson discovered, and each of our 10 trillion cells has a word three to five billion letters long. Information itself, the great renewed discovery of our information age today, is truly immaterial, whether printed or stored on the internet in the clouds somewhere. And it confirms the immateriality of God and the verbal nature of creation and its creator's speaking. Five, this creator is Trinitarian. Now, when I say that, I I fully realize that I'm reading this passage as a Christian with fuller revelation than ancient Israelites. And yet, the more I've thought about it, the more the church father's interpretation in this regard, at least, seems to me to have been accurate. The Spirit of God, verse 1, is hovering over the waters. And then a little later, God says, uh, verse 26, let us make man in our image. And I think that let us is less likely to be a sort of royal we speech, let us. Less likely to be God talking to angels, uh, let us, uh, the, the angels that play no other role in the Genesis account originally, to, to me, than to be a primitive hint which is fulfilled later in the fuller revelation of God the Father, the Son, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. 
In the beginning, John says in his gospel, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That Word became flesh. And so God is relational in His very essence. Now, He is one, unlike the pagan view of God's But there is the Word and the Spirit here present in His Trinitarian nature to use language for much later to explain this reality here hinted. Six, this Creator is loving. Now, the word love is not used here, but the action of love is real. He blessed them, verse 28, and wanted them to be fruitful. He set man in the garden, a paradise, a place of pleasure and life. Everything he makes is good, fine, beautiful, excellent, bountiful. And the one thing that he declares not good, man to be alone, he lovingly remedies. So this creation story tells us that God is loving. And when uh, you and I meet things then in our lives that appear less than loving, We not only have the Christ on the cross, which tells us that God suffered for the sins of the world, we also have the original design templates that tells us that this is not how God designed things to be, and that one day, as Revelation picks up so much of this imagery of Genesis, one day there will be a new Eden, a new paradise, which will fully express the goodness of God in the new creation, the new heaven and earth. Seven, this creator is holy. Not only is everything he creates good, but he also sets up a tree in the garden, the knowledge of good and evil, which indicates his rule and moral standards which the created man and woman are to obey. Just as the tree of life indicates that God is alone self-sufficiently immortal and that man's life is dependent upon God's giving of life. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil indicates that God is holy and demands holiness of His creation. He alone decides what is good and evil. He alone makes the rules in terms of holiness And it is our responsibility to reflect that holiness in obedience. Distinct from creation, eternal, all-powerful, speaking, Trinitarian, loving, holy. seems to me that at least these seven truths about the Creator are revealed in these chapters, if not more. This is the God we worship this morning. Not a creation of time, not a force of nature, not turning a blind eye to evil, not just one but three in one, not hating but loving, not passive but all-powerful, not silent but speaking. Worship Him. Second, His creation. Now, I was tempted to come up with a list of six for some numerological significance after a list of seven, but I think four should cover it. There are at least four truths that these chapters 
uh, it seems to me, teach about His creation. One, it is good. Now, we look around these days and see the world in decay, uh, but this tells us it was not always so. The world was made good, and God repeats that refrain uh, throughout the account. And when we come to chapter 2, which I see in the old rabbinic interpretation as a filling out of day 6 of creation, that's how I think the two accounts fit, we find that man is placed in a garden of unparalleled beauty and perfection. And most likely that garden was intended to be a sanctuary from which man was to fulfill his mandate to go to the whole earth and bring into line creation with God's created intention. Of course, no one knows uh, where Eden was, though the Egyptologist Kitchen, in his book on the historical reliability of the Old Testament, makes some fascinating comments that appear to be the best contemporary attempt to locate its historical origin, which will put it right now, he thinks, at the bottom of the sea in the Gulf, as he says, forever inaccessible. Two, man and woman are made in God's image. Not male alone, but male and female are both created in His image. And to be in God's image means not to be God. That is the first truth of the pinnacle of God's creation. We are given high significance, but only a reflected significance. We shine like the moon with the light of the sun, reflected glory. We are intended, in C.S. Lewis's phrase, to be an adjective, never the noun. This image intends relational capacity with God. Man is made a living being, as Paul picks up on this phrase later, as the Lord God forms man out of the dust. And whereas with other aspects of creation God speaks, and it is with man, he, he gets down and potter-like forms out of the material of the world, yet, yet breathes into us. All ancient languages had the same word for breath as for spirit to make us distinct in His image, able to relate to Him and designed to worship Him in love and obedience. That's how it seems to me it fits together. In particular, this image is a vice-regent image. That is, we are intended to rule over the earth as God rules over us. We are His moral vice-regents of the universe ruling and carrying out God's rule, His ambassadors, if you like that analogy. This view of creation is good, and the man and woman as God's gardeners to take care of creation speaks out against fatalism. All philosophies of the worship of nature, as well as all practices of the abuse of the image of God and the creation of God. Now, my friends, today especially, in our culture, do not miss the importance of this. If humans are no different from animals, then we can act like animals and treat each other like animals. In fact, all of the West's view of the sanctity of life, of care for each other when we are sick, of nursing care, of service to the elderly or the vulnerable or the disabled, of, of a society of a meritocracy that allows everyone the opportunity to flourish, of caring for the dying, of, of infants. All that 
is built upon these simple statements that God, the Creator, has given us, His creation, a special status and a special responsibility. Three, creation, us, as made in His image, is a dependent creation. And this is intended, of course, to honor and glorify God all the time. So God is not the deist God, distant from His creation, who sets the ball rolling and then watches uh, from, from a distance what's going on. This creation is dependent constantly upon Him. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, therefore honors God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Or Paul preaches evangelistically, saying, Acts 17, verse 28, in Him we live and move and have our being, therefore to honor Him. Creation is separate from the Creator, but He puts us in the garden. He gives us trees from which to eat. Adam and Eve were given the tree of life, which to eat, to live, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, from which not to eat. For if they did, then dying, they would surely die. This creation is derived from the Creator and is intended constantly then to witness to the Creator. Should the word create is only ever used in the Old Testament of God. He is the Creator. We are the dependent creation. And there is in this dependence then here a covenant between Adam and Eve and God. The word covenant is not used, but the covenant God, Yahweh, is the term used for God in the second chapter. And the tree, some say the sacrament, is intended to witness to this original covenant dependent relationship between man and God. Who is equal to describe these things? They are beyond all of us, yet expected of all of us to worship Him in dependence, in covenant, in relationship, in humility, in holiness, and therefore in the pleasure and beauty of Eden, now fulfilled in Christ, sacrificed in a different garden on a different tree who has opened up the way to the new heaven and the new earth where the tree of life will once more be and its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. For marriage is a creation standard. Jesus draws this conclusion from this part of Scripture, Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And in those two verses, Jesus teaches us that Genesis 1 and 2 are complementary, those two chapters, for he quotes from chapter 1 at the start of his statement and chapter 2 at the end of his statement. Jesus teaches us that what the author of Scripture says is what God says, for he quotes what is the author's description in Genesis 2 as what God himself says. Jesus teaches us that gender distinction, male and female, is part of God's creation design. Jesus teaches us that one man, one woman for life as one flesh is marriage. And if we follow Jesus, we are to follow what He asks us to do and what He asks us to believe. 
And so the sexual relationship in marriage is originally, God declared, good. It is God's design. They were naked and were not ashamed. So, my friends, the Creator, distinct from creation, eternal, all-powerful, speaking, Trinitarian, loving, holy, His creation, good, man and woman in His image, a dependent creation, marriage as a creation standard. Well, I wish now to draw four practical applications with a theological underpinning to them as we conclude. Here they are. One, would you embrace a creation view of the environment, not an atheistic view of the environment? Behind some calls to recycle, to take care of the rainforests, to look after our environment, to watch our CO2 emissions, is a thinly disguised philosophy that sees no great distinction between a chimpanzee and a baby. But while chimpanzees may have 98% the same DNA as humans, chimpanzees are not 98% human. And so we should reject atheistic environmentalism that is a form of worship of nature. But we should embrace a creation attitude to the environment, or to put it in the terms of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, to subdue the world, to, to be God's vice regents, lovingly caring for the world, to be the gardeners taking good care of the world in which He has put us. You see, raping the earth is no more Christian than worshipping a tree, for while the one worships nature, the other worships selfish humanity. Instead, we as the pinnacle of God's creation are to set the example of bringing all things together for God's glory and praise. And of course, this means, uh, from a New Testament uh, perspective, that any concern for gardening is subordinate to the commission of Christ to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. That is the way that the new heaven and the new earth will, under God's sovereign plan, be populated with people from every tribe and nation, and the way that the world in the end will be saved not through environmental action, but through the revelation of the sons of God for which the creation itself has been subject to frustration and is waiting for them to be revealed. So every time you disciple someone, every time you evangelize someone, you, according to the Apostle Paul, are doing that for which the creation itself longs because it will bring about the new heaven and the new earth. To resist the watering down of marriage in our society. If we follow Jesus, we should follow Genesis' description of God's intention for marriage. And this side of the fall, not everyone will have good marriages. I am well aware of that as a pastor. But one woman, one man, one flesh is God's intention. And we are to fight for our marriages then. We are to resist tendencies to destroy marriage. We are to love our spouse, writer, poetry, a bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Be his helper. Feel no shame. Three, 
remain convinced that the Bible's account of origins is persuasive. Now, how do you do that, you say? Well, I think the way to do that is to adopt a humble, open, but critical stance towards all so-called advances in contemporary knowledge. When in doubt, stick to what you do know in the face of what you do not. Do not make the Bible say more than it says, nor less than it says, but accept Jesus' view of Genesis and Paul's, who said he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, Acts 17, verse 26. Now, how some of that fits with contemporary paleontology or geology may not be clear, though there are several different models that Bible-believing Christians these days adopt. But it may also be that what we think of as the latest findings in science will in a few years be no more persuasive than Aristotelian views of a fixed earth are now. So be humble before God's Word. Believe and believe what it says, for its account of what we find around us, of who we are, is utterly persuasive and has, uh, as I was reminded this week from J.B. Phillips, and he put it, the ring of truth. For when you tell the gospel story, then realize that, uh, of course, people will not understand their need of a Savior until they understand their condition as sinners, and they will not understand their condition as sinners until they grasp their moral accountability before this Creator God, their Creator God. The cross is the center of salvation, but creation is the beginning of the story of salvation. So tell the gospel story starting with God who made us to be in a relationship of loving obedience, then to us who have rebelled, then to Christ who took the penalty of our rebellion, and then to the need for response with repentance and faith. Now, when we consider these magisterial chapters, the only appropriate response is awe like climbing to the top of a very tall building and looking out over a city. They should leave us with a sense of perspective that is a little disconcerting for the fallen man and woman. They should leave us with a longing for something better, a time when creation did as it was told. And we played our part in the divine orchestra according to the Creator's score. When all was good and beautiful and pleasurable, it should lead us to be glad for Christ, the second Adam. In Him we are the new creation. It should cause us to be humble. It should cause us to have a sense of dignity as made in God's image. It should cause His creation to worship the Creator. Let's pray together. Father, we wish to do that. We wish to 
worship the Creator, to worship you, God. We confess before you that we are made, created. We confess before you our brokenness and rebellion and also our longing for the new heaven and the new earth. We praise you for the experience of the new creation, of regeneration, a foretaste of that heaven for all those who repent and put their faith in Christ. And we bow before you. We repent of all our silly, foolish ideas of being the center of the universe. We also uh, repent of any sense of insignificance. We realize we are made in your image with a high status and high responsibility. And we bow before you and worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen.